Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm delighted to have you here today. In this podcast, I attempt to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, whereby I draw on my background as a licensed acupuncturist, a long-term practitioner of the Buddha Dharma, as well as my uh, ongoing interest in the practice of yin yoga. So I try to weave these themes of these practices into elements of this podcast. And each week, um, or each month, I should say, I, I produce uh, at minimum a Dharma talk a week, a few guided meditations through the month, and a few conversations with guests and friends of mine related to these themes. So welcome aboard. I'm really happy to have you here. In this talk, I share a very personal story uh, from high school, way back, over 30 years ago, when I met the, the man that Mandela called the Mozart of South Africa. He's a jazz pianist, a legendary jazz pianist named Abdullah Ibrahim. Um, as I get into in the talk, uh, Abdullah came to my high school for a concert. I had a very profound connection with him. And I think I would say that experience profoundly shaped uh, my life. It, it, it profoundly shaped my, uh, my interest in spirituality. And I kind of wanted to share the essence of that encounter that I had with him. So I call it digging deep because Abdullah shared with me the, the, the first time I heard this metaphor, the metaphor of digging one's well deep. And as he said to me, when we dig the well deep, we realize we're all drinking from the same source. And that's a message that I think is of profound importance right now in our world, that we all, I want to exhort everyone to dig your well deeply as much as you can to realize that we're all drinking from the same source. Now, um, before I give you the podcast, I just want to say if you would like support in digging your well, if you would like support in your own spiritual path and, and, and development, um, I encourage you to check out uh, our online sangha called the Riverbird Sangha that Terry, my partner, and I run and facilitate. Um, you could, this is another way to support the podcast, too. So either if you'd like to support the podcast um, or... Uh, receive access to our online library that includes classes, workshops, and, and importantly, tutorials on the practices of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation. Our library is growing week by week. We have over 300 hours of content there now, and it's all available to you if you're interested in joining our sangha. Memberships start at $5 a month, all the way up to $99 a month. It's a sliding fee. You pay what you can, and we're just happy to have you on board with us. So if that's of interest to you, please check out joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And that's a word from Buddhism that refers to a community of like-minded practitioners that share really the aspirations of the awakened heart. So I hope you'll consider joining us. We look forward to practicing with you. And without further ado, I now bring you my Dharma talk from last week, Digging Deep. So um, as I've been thinking about this talk tonight, this is actually a talk that has been on the back burner of my mind for probably a year now, um, if not longer. It's been a, a topic that I've been, and a theme that I've been 
chewing, chewing on and wondering how to articulate what matters most to me about this topic um, or what is, feels very meaningful to me. And in, in, as I shared with you, some of you in the past, um, a few going back a month or so, I, I visited my mother and discovered a treasure trove of a box of my old journals. Um, and some of the journals <clears throat> started out in high school. Um, they went a little, it was a little bit spotty through college, but I picked up when I, uh, after college, when I went to Asia for about three and a half years. And, and so there was a big chunk of these journals that were from that time, from end of high school into um, Asia, and then returning from Asia uh, when I went to acupuncture school. So there's a good 15 to 16 year span here. And even though I, I haven't really opened up too many of the journals and reread entries and or really opened up the past in a sense, there's a curious way that I've been noticing just having them in a stack kind of on my bookcase has reminded me of that whole time. And it, and it, it, in some ways, it feels very far away and, and paradoxically also very present. But one thing that I um, should say at the very, very beginning of this talk is that there is a there's an unfortunate need to engage in a kind of shameless humble brag on my part. And if there was some way to get around this humble brag, I would, but it, it's just not possible with the story I want to tell. So that's the caveat up front. <clears throat> but in surveying, you know, thinking back and reflecting on my life, I, I can really see that at the end of high school, my senior year, I had a peak phase. It was a peak phase of, of my existence um, where stars were aligning in synchronistic ways and, 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 and it was just kind of a very ecstatic, blissful period of time. Definitely had its lows too, but there were some real high points. And a lot of the high points circled around a particular individual. And this individual who I've shared with you about a bit before, um, just only in brief in the past, but this individual's name is Abdullah Ibrahim. And Abdullah was and is... Uh, one of the greatest jazz musicians alive. He originally came from South Africa. He grew up in South Africa uh, in the 70s. I believe he emigrated to Switzerland. And then um, Duke Ellington discovered him in Switzerland, ironically, a town that I used to teach in called St. Gallen. And Duke Ellington brought him back to the United States where Abdullah had a long uh, kind of residency in New York City. And um, in the early 90s, he started touring again and went home for the first time. But I was at a high school, it was a private school south of Boston called Milton Academy. And the jazz teacher I had there at the time had fallen in love with Abdullah's music. And at a local concert outside Boston, my jazz teacher invited Abdullah to come to our school in honor or to support the, the, the revenue generation for a scholarship fund that the school had, whereby they brought one student from South Africa to the school once a year. And um, Abdullah, Abdullah agreed to come and play for the scholarship fund. Now, this was pretty cool to me because um, not only was I excited to have a, a real jazz master like Abdullah come, and I loved his music that I was getting to know, but the recipient of the scholarship was two doors down from me in, in the 
in the hall on my dormitory. So, um, you know, when I would practice, this guy Shayla would come and just, he would slip into my room and just listen a lot. And so there was a way that I felt like my practice and my, my, my kind of devotion to the music in a way was, was energetically supporting in, in an indirect way, someone like him to be here and to receive the kind of education that I was getting. And it felt very meaningful. Um, so the concert was set for early fall and, uh, we had as a, as a group of senior musicians, about seven or eight of us, we had a, about a month to put together a set of 30, 30 minutes or so of Abdullah's music. Now, looking back, it seems kind of, um, a little bit strange to, if your, if your group is going to be opening up for a headliner to, to start to do covers of the headliner's music, but that's what we did. <laughs> we, we played a kind of medley of Abdullah Ibrahim's greatest hits um, before he took the stage. And two of these songs, there are slow ballads, happened to feature, feature Abdullah's alto sax player, which meant that it happened to feature me on alto sax in these songs. This is where the, the humble brag is going to inevitably creep in. Now, I, as a jazz musician, try, an aspiring jazz musician, one of the things jazz musicians knows, knows is that they have to listen deeply. All musicians have to learn how to listen deeply. But I was sort of listening to Abdullah's music at the time, like my life depended on it. So this is the, the days of Walkmans and Discmans. And I had my headphones on, listening to the same record when I woke up in the morning, when I was walking to a class, between classes, after lunch, going home back to the dorm before bed. It was just on constantly. And I, it was one of these pieces of music that really brought me into a deep spiritual connection with myself. There's no other way to describe it. And I practiced and practiced and practiced. And when the, when the night came to play, I was paradoxically a little jittery but if I look back, and this is kind of a strange thing to re think back on, at the same time, as much as I was jittery, I was also probably more confident about anything, about playing that piece than I was about anything else in my life since her prior. Like there was, there was a way that I felt this inner conviction, an inner understanding of the piece that uh, it was a kind of a confidence I just never knew before and still don't really know. So we played. We played our music, we played his music for him. And when he came out after we played, he sort of, after the applause died down, he spoke to us and the audience. It was a small, small, intimate theater. And he just said, I've never heard musicians outside of my own band play my music this well. This is extraordinary. I would like to invite the band behind me to tour with me in South Africa when I return home for the first time this year, this, this coming year. I don't really remember much after that, <laughs> that moment. I remember the, the concert being amazing that he gave, but for next several months, my feet literally never touched the ground. I just floated around the school. I just couldn't believe that this thing was happening. And in fact, it did happen. None of us took it seriously at first, but then two weeks after he visited, he called up and said, so have you started raising money for this trip? There were a lot of other things, stars that aligned that allowed this to happen, but really at the time, and, and I want to include this here too, because it speaks to the idea of karma. When I went to the school, I left my former school in Marshfield 
And in leaving the, my former school, I left my first real music teacher, the teacher that, you know, I was thinking about this. If you, if you imagine the coach, the basketball coach that stays after that makes players do free throw shots and three point shots and run all sorts of plays over and over and over again till they, till they, till they get it into their, their muscle memory. This music teacher worked that way. He worked and, and gave so much of himself to extract and bring out the best in all of us. He, he had a very um, uncanny ability uh, to literally create the best, best musicians in the state. So his, he played saxophone. It just so happened that, that he played saxophone, but he, anyone that studied flute with him would become the best flautist in the state. A violinist would become a great violinist. A trombonist would become the great trombonist. He just had produced high caliber musicians. And I was very lucky in, in a way to be in his guild. And I could see that the gift he gave me, which was principally my sound, was what attracted Abdullah. You know, it, because it, the, after the concert, the word came back that he couldn't believe he wanted his own sax player to hear me to have a laugh at how much I had copied his own play, his his own horn players playing. <clears throat> so that was this big exciting thing that happened, and in fact, we we did go on tour. Uh, it, it, it didn't work out that we toured with him. I think the, the word trickled down. It, it was sort of. Uh, we came to understand that, that Abdullah had second thoughts about the optics of after almost two decades of being away from his ancestral home of what it would look like to come back with a privileged white band of, of musicians opening up for him. Um, but we still went and, and, and he, we did link up with him. When we were there, but while there, and, and so this is, this is kind of where I want to move the, the story we played in a variety of places in South Africa, uh, principally through Johannesburg, Durban, Port Elizabeth, and Cape Town. And at one point before a show, I remember walking around Johannesburg just by myself. And I saw some guys sort of hanging out under a, a tree in a, near a park. And one of them came over to me. And he said, where are you from? I said, excuse me? He said, where are you from? He said, and I just sort of said, uh, I'm from the States, but how did you know I wasn't from here? And he said, because you looked at us and you smiled. And this is pre apartheid ending South Africa it was just on the cusp of the white referendum that would change political hands. But it sent a shiver down me. Of real sadness. And at the same time, I thought, what an amazing thing that's, that an individual who has been the victim of an incredibly oppressive political system can just recognize a foreigner by the fact that they smile. And this is, I have many South African friends. So this is not an indictment against white people from South Africa. Either. I, I know whites and they're wonderful people. It was a horrible system, but that was that, that, that kindled in me 
a kind of hope, a kind of post-racial hope that maybe all it takes is a smile. And I grew up in the 80s and, you know, I like to buy the world a Coke. I'd like to give the world a smile and, and create some harmony. Later in the, sh- in the tour, we, we played in a few um, all-black art enclaves in outside townships. And one in particular was called the Federation and Union of Black Artists. And in our concerts, we played a combination of American jazz standards and South African jazz tunes, the South African township jazz sound. And at the end of our concerts, uh, the horn section, so me and my two brothers in the horns, would play the African National Congress uh, theme song or the resistance song called Nkosi Sileli e Africa. The African National Congress is Nkosi Sileli Africa. It's a very, it's like a hymn-like melody. And in this particular concert, I remember we played just one bar and the entire audience was suddenly on their feet with their fists held up, which is the defiance symbol of resistance. You know, and as I say it now, there's shivers that go down my spine. I can tell you right then there was a kind of shivery experience of instantaneous solidarity an instantaneous transcendence, at least this is the way it felt, of layers and layers and layers of misunderstanding and a direct connection between hearts. So these experiences deeply shaped me, as you might imagine. And looking back, I've been really reflecting on this, but looking back, I can reflect and see how naive my consciousness was at the time. You know, and there's other things I could mention about this, but it really seemed like we were moving towards a post-racial society, moving to this kind of shiny, happy people, all holding hands kind of world. And then I got to college, which was in New York City. And I learned about the war on drugs. I learned about redlining. And I learned about all the many other open wounds in our country, in the United States, from our original birth trauma or original sin. But there was something about my experience in South Africa that instilled in me a conviction that the solution to this problem of misunderstanding each other, of oppressing each other, is that the solution resides in the human heart. And recently, I've, I'm grateful to have come across a book called America's Racial Karma by a Zen teacher and activist named Larry Ward. And I'll be suggesting that it's a very taut, you know, slim volume. It's not more, much more than 100, 130 pages. It's a very tightly argued book about America's racial karma. It's not just America's racial karma, as I'll get into in subsequent talks. 
it's a worldwide problem, but particularly toxic, particularly inflamed, particularly pathological in the United States. And in this book, the reason why I mention it is that I think Larry, the author, Larry Ward, also feels that the healing from this trauma, this ongoing trauma, resides in our hearts. It's just that he's describing it, that healing process, in a much deeper way. And I want to share a little bit or hint of that deeper way and how I, I'm trying to align our practice here within what he's suggesting. So at one point in, his, in this book, America's Racial Karma, uh, Larry Ward cites Carl Jung, the great Swiss psych, psychiatrist, psychologist, psychoanalyst. One of, he's, Carl Jung's one of them. <laughs> Big thinker, though. And he says, in Carl Jung's book, The Undiscovered Self, he was asked after World War II what the future would be. So Carl Jung, having lived through and just witnessed all these atrocities of World War II, what would the future be? Jung's answer was, only by understanding our unconscious inner nature, that is the undiscovered self, can we gain the self-knowledge that is antithetical to ideological fanaticism. But Larry Ward continues and says, but this requires facing the duality of the human psyche, the existence of good and evil in us all, or in Buddhist terms, our wholesome and unwholesome seeds. So if you've ever looked at my podcast art and seen the little kind of devilish character that's transcended by the kind of anxious monkey who's transcended by a more of a Buddhist spirit. I'm trying to capture this idea that we have that inspired by Jung, that we have this unconscious within us. And until we face this duality, we cannot bring our own being or the being, our, you know, our experience within the world to a state of healing. Larry continues by saying, in my meditations, in my meditations and reflections, I realized that the undiscovered self is also the undiscovered society. This means that our external life is intractably bound to our inner life. And as he says, this is the underlying insight of my book. It means it is possible for us to come home to our whole being to heal ourselves and engage in a life-affirming social imagination and inspiration. So this is, this is a, a broader theme that I've been, I've been reflecting on for a while now. It's that how much spirituality can be a projection of love and light and that the, the shadow elements are being the, par the parts that we dissociate from or repress or turn away or deny Oftentimes the, the parts of ourselves that other people can very clearly see when we can, that these need to be open to, that these need to be understood, these, these need to be embraced before, as virtually every mystic I've ever read or listened to says, before the chaos in the world that we 
are so concerned about will start to transform. In other words, it's the idea that what we don't acknowledge or, or remain unconscious to within ourselves is something that gets projected out into the world. So part of our, you know, the Sangha mission, if I were to try to summarize and slip this in now, the Sangha mission is that we're trying to provide practices through meditation, yin yoga, and qigong so that we can all heal ourselves internally, heal and harmonize our energy as a precondition for understanding how to engage and be proactive and creatively imaginative about what solutions might heal what the, the problems that the planet is facing. So to, if I try to draw a line now from the need to open to our unconscious, to integrate our unconscious, as Larry Ward is saying, to our practice, I would say one thing we can definitely draw on from, particularly draw on the, the, the world of music, and, and in this case, my, what I'm mentioning around jazz, we can draw on the deep importance of listening itself. And this is something I was trying to bring up in the workshop on Sunday related to the kidneys. The kidneys open to the ears and when the kidney energy is strong, we're able to hear clearly, not just literally, but but more um, figuratively and metaphorically through different dimensions of our world. We can hear and hold more. So there's a way that practice um, really relies and, and begins on a basis of deep listening. In jazz, uh, when, I, when I used to practice more with other people and hang out with jazz friends, there was a word, a nickname uh, jazz musicians would give each other if we recognized somebody having big ears. I'd say something like, that guy is like Dumbo. Dumbo the elephant, the big-eared elephant. It's like their ears were so big, it was the greatest compliment you could give a jazz musician. You have such major ears. and. I think it's this ability to listen deeply. It's not the, ol the, the only part of the solution here, but this listening deeply is essential if we're going to start to be able to hear each other. And if I can share my story and the, the hint of hubris in saying this, which is that I know I listen deeply enough to Abdullah so he could hear me. How can a white kid from the suburbs of Boston speak and connect to a jazz master from South Cape Town, South Africa, when everything about their life experience is different? What allows a bridge to form for two different worlds of experience? to touch in the heart. And my experience tells me it's listening. And I know this because 13 years after this first tour, well, actually two things. One, the school has gone back every other year since. So there's been an every other year uh, tour to South Africa, setting up cross-cultural musical exchanges every other year since. And, and again, I'm very proud of that. 
I'm extremely proud of that. It's one of the, the, the gems in my life to think that I was able to be part of that initial group that got that energy going. But 13 years after this first tour in 1992, um, I was just finished with my uh, master's in acupuncture in Boston. And Abdullah was playing at the Real Deal Jazz Cafe in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a temporary jazz club that opened up for a few years. And I was very eager to go. I finally had a little money and a little time outside of, of my studies to, to go take in some music. And in the ensuing years, the years between when I heard him in New York and when I heard him in Cambridge, I, I was struck by how much sort of his music had shifted. You know, he, he didn't have his horn section with him. He didn't have his full band. It was his trio. It was just bass, drums, and, and himself on piano. But there was a, a sensitivity and a, and a kind of a melancholic grief that I felt coming through his music, you know, frailty from age but all kind of wrapped within this, this masterly, tenderly beauty that can happen with older musicians. This is a very, still a very moving performance. And afterwards I was about to leave um, and uh, a friend of mine from Acupuncture School just happened to be the manager of this jazz club. And he saw me going out and he said, hey, don't you want to say hi to Abdullah? You know, I, I, you talked to me about Abdullah. You've had all these great experiences you know, with him. Why don't you go say hi to him? And my friend ushered me backstage. And next thing I knew, I was standing in a room with Abdullah Ibrahim. And I was anxious as I am now talking about it. And I said, Abdullah, um, nice to see you. You won't remember me, but many years ago, and before I could finish reminding him who I was, he says, of course I remember you, Josh from Milton. And I was kind of froze. How on earth? I said, last time you saw me, you know, I looked like a blonde Kenny G of sorts, <laughs> you know, now I'm bald. And how, how did you remember me? He chuckled. And then in the way he did, does with his, his presence, his eyes fixed on me right dead in, in my eyes. And he said, when you dig the well deep enough, you realize we're all drinking from the same source. And I had heard his album from an ancient well, and I had been around the meditation world and yoga world. I'd heard all the, the metaphors of digging the well deeply. So I understood what that was, but I had no idea. And I still don't really know what is the relationship between digging a well deeply and knowing that we're all coming from the same source and being able to remember my name. <laughs> it just didn't, didn't connect with me. I didn't understand it. So I was a bit caught, caught off by that. And I, and, as you might do yourself, I, when I get nervous, sometimes I start to talk and sometimes even overshare just to fill space. So I started saying, I said, you know, I haven't played very much since, since back then, um, since that time at Milton, but um, I play every now and then, but mostly I just want to tell you, and I wanted to share and really convey to him that his, the spiritual, the spiritual presence he brought to his music deeply affected me, deeply influenced me. And then I said, you know, I've been practicing yoga and I've been getting into meditation. I just finished an, a, a master's in acupuncture. And I'm really excited because I'm about to go on a two-month retreat to Burma. For two months, I'll just be meditating the whole time. And he looked at me again and he fixed those 
steady eyes. And he said, dig deep. And it was after he said that it was just time stopped. I was just like receiving direct transmission from the, from the Zen master. He brought his heart hands to his heart. I brought my hands to my heart and I knew the interview was over. We bowed and I thanked him. In the following years, when I think about that encounter and his exhortation to dig deep, it's not all that different in many ways to the Buddha's own dying words. So when the Buddha died on his deathbed, you know, I forget which attendant came to him and said, please give us one more teaching. And his final words before he passed away, before his body died, was something along the lines of practice diligently. Like, don't practice heedlessly. Practice with heedfulness and diligence, the whole hearted ardency. And I felt that in the way Abdullah said to dig deep. Because in the little bit that I did dig deep, again, it was enough for him to hear me, to know that I could hear him. So may we all dig our wells deeply. May we realize our common source. And may we realize that this common source is what Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as the interrelated structure of reality. So this is, I'm going to give the closing words to the man who's in the United States, we celebrate the life and legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'll give these words, share these words from him with you now. In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope it stimulates and provides some good reflection for your ongoing investigation in your own practice. And I just want to say before I leave you today that if you would like a guided meditation to accompany the theme of really listening deeply, I encourage you to check out my last episode called Winter's Listening. That's episode 157 with Winter's Listening. Um, one more time, if you'd like ongoing support in your own practice, if you'd like to support the podcast, if you'd just like to chip in and help the work that Terry and I are doing and give yourself a lot of edifying practices, tutorials, and workshops, please check out 
the Riverbird Sangha. That's at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. But that's a way you can help out, support the podcast, as well as get our unique blend of Taoist, Buddhism, spirituality infused with the wisdom of jazz improvisation. So if that's of interest, do check us out at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. And if you're not ready to commit to joining a, a, a sangha like we're descri- what I'm describing, no worries. Uh, one easy way to, to kind of support the show and, and, and taste some of the, the kinds of practices that Terry and I offer is to go to our shop page. That's at joshsummers.net forward slash shop where we have on-demand courses and workshops to give you a sense of how we teach and and practice. So we we hope you'll check those out. There's links for you in the show notes. And I just want to thank you one more time for listening today. Please stay safe, stay strong, take care of yourself, and keep practicing. I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.